Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your hustle and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And uh, Noel, how's it going this week? I'm doing okay. It's been a kind of a long week, but I'm doing okay. How are you? I am also doing okay, but it yeah. has also been a long week. So ask me next week. We'll see what happens. Woo! 26, 7 days, however many days it is. <sighs> um, we have some news up here at the top. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, 10 or 88 at the end of the show, which uh, I had never heard of until Noel mentioned it. Uh, Noel, what is 10 or 88? So Tenor 88 is a fake documentary series. I don't want to call it a mockumentary series because it's not a mockumentary. Um, it's not a comedy. Least, it's not a comedy, but it's a fake documentary series um, written by Gary Trudeau, who uh, created the Doonesbury comic strip and directed by Robert Altman about a politician who runs in the Democratic primary in 1988 named Jack Tanner. And it's originally aired on HBO back in 1988, um, and it's generally pretty well regarded, even though it's really quietly well regarded, I think. Um, but yeah, this is also, I think, the oldest show we've talked about in quite a long time. Months. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm excited to talk about it. I had actually never seen this before because it was it wasn't hard to get a hold of, but basically the only way to watch it was to buy the Criterion edition of it. It was the only way to watch it until HBO Max made it available. Um, when they rejiggered everything. So I'm I'm glad it's available and I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, and listeners, in case you didn't catch that, it's a, a show about someone running in the 88 election that was filmed before the 88 election. So it was, it was During, filmed like while all this was happening and the yes. run up to the primary for the Democratic nomination. So that gives it a very specific feel. Um, if you are not sure, if you want to check this out, if the West Wing is your jam and you want to see one of its very clear inspirations yeah seek it out um and then you can listen to our segment and if you are you know that if you're like i don't know then just listen to the segment see what you think it's kind of hard to spoil because jake tanner is not was not the nominee in 1988 he's also for history (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you know you kind of get a sense of what's going to happen but it's still an interesting show so we'll be talking about that at the end of the uh podcast today um 11 episodes First one's an hour. The rest are half hours. Um, So, yeah, check it out. For news, we have some more COVID cancellations. And, you know, we'll have some thoughts on that. But the the one that was particularly rough for for me, at least this week, was Glow got got recanceled after being renewed for season four. After they had started filming season four. They, like, finished an episode. um, And then they're like, nah. Um, so that sucks. Uh, and on becoming a god in Central Florida, season two was also pulled. Um, there is a trend that people are starting to note and comment on that they already had been, but these two really highlighted it. Of which shows are getting canceled? Hmm. It tends to be ones with women as the leads or shows that are like considered for women or geared towards women. Isn't that a surprise or interesting? And of course it's not. 
a surprise. And of course, it is uh, very, very frustrating. So, uh, Noel, do you have any thoughts on either of these cancellations or on that trend? Are you shocked? Shocked at which shows are getting cut first? I'm not shocked. Um, so, no, I'm not shocked. I'm very disappointed by Glow's cancellation. I was really looking forward to season four, especially given how season three ended. So that, in conjunction with the fact that they had already started shooting, is a real just disappointment. And I understand from like a budgetary standpoint with the cast and everything, like it's very difficult to keep everyone safe to maintain safety protocols, especially with the fact that that show does a lot of wrestling. To which I also go, season three did not do a lot of wrestling, everyone, so I'm not really exactly sure what your concern actually is. Um, but I think that the pandemic is becoming a good way for places, distributors, for networks, for channels, for platforms to go, uh, this maybe isn't working for us anymore and the costs don't make sense and they weren't making sense. So let's just cut them. Uh, the Stumptown example is a really great one right now and Glow is another example of, yeah, no, it's probably very expensive to maintain the safety protocols for this. On the other hand, they already shot an episode, so clearly things are maybe okay, but I don't know. Um, it's disappointing all the same. Yeah. So there, there have got to be plenty of other shows that Netflix is making that cost the same or more than Glow that they are continuing to go forward on. Um, they just announced a new Jeffrey Dahmer thing by Ryan Murphy. So we're going to get that, but we're not going to get Glow Season 4. Well, they've paid Ryan Murphy already so much money. <laughs> they have to get a return on their investment somehow. He's got like eight or nine shows filming this mm -hmm. fall, is what I've heard. Yeah. Like currently filming. So, yeah. It just speaks to priorities. And I am shocked, shocked, as I said earlier, that... Um, women-led shows are not a priority uh, compared to other shows. So, yep. Uh, speaking of priorities, let's go over to SNL, which I haven't watched. Listeners, I know usually we watch like on YouTube some of the clips and everything. When I, as soon as I heard that SNL did basically the standard SNL treatment to the previous debate, presidential debate, I was like, oh, okay, I'm not going to watch then because I don't need to see. Aren't these both of these people so goofy about that last debate. Uh, but apparently there was an audience and uh, that is of note because that audience was not an audience, silly. It was employees. So what is this about, Noel? So um, Lauren Michaels gave an interview with Vulture um, that was basically saying, we need an audience. With comedy, when you don't hear the response, it's just different. And he's right. There is... A difference in comedy, but we're already seeing that. We've been living with that since this started in March with Late Night. Um, Colbert, Myers, Kimmel, everyone has been dealing with not having an audience. Sam B's not had an audience except Jason Jones, and whenever Jason Jones speaks up, I actually kind of enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no audience. Um, and for him, for Michaels, they just went, well, we need to have an audience. And the way that they get around the um, safety protocols of the state is that they pay people to be audience members. So people applied in pods, basically, uh, pandemic pods, more or less. So the, and then they were grouped together in the seating arrangement 
at the SNL studio. Um, they had to wear masks, but they weren't social distancing, um, even though pods were a recommended amount of feet away from one another. But everyone that was an audience member had to supply their own transportation to uh, the studio, which meant, in New York case, getting Ubers everywhere. So that, that that's one point of contact that is already at risk. Um, everyone had to be test do have a rapid test performed when they got to Studio Six H. Um, and then and we know we know the you know there's yeah. never any false negatives in those rapid tests. Exactly. So there's there's never anything like that. Um, and they had to actually self-administer those um, rapid tests, which were antigen tests, which, again, also are not super reliable. Um, so they did all of that. And then at the end of taping, at the end of filming, every audience member got $150. That makes them contractors for SNL because these people were found through a casting agency that SNL hired to find audience members so that they get around the thing of you can't have any audience members in your show that aren't employees. Well, guess what? We paid these people $150. So there are employees. Um, Amusingly, one of the people who was interviewed for a newsletter I found, um, which is um, Seth Simmons's humor, humorism, um, um it, link in the show notes yeah link in the show notes um noted that the audience member was unsure <laughs> had no idea if she owed taxes on it she owes taxes on it um she's a contractor <laughs> only if you may well at least in the state yeah. of illinois if you yeah. make six hundred dollars or more you do and if you make less yeah. than six hundred dollars you don't so depending on what new york it state law is yeah yeah but they should have educated them on that. <laughs> right. They probably did not sign like a 1099 or anything or fill mm-hmm. out 1099. Or if they did, they filled it out with the casting agency through the third party. Um, so any and in any way, um, the health department has been really cagey about coming down on SNL about this, um, even though they should, because it's a it's a clear loophole that SNL is violating and taking mm-hmm. advantage of to have an audience present. Um, and it's bad. It's wrong. It's it's putting a, many people at risk, including their cast members, mm-hmm. um, including audience members, including the band members. Um, they already had a musician for this week's episode pull out and had to be replaced with Jack White. Um, it's not safe to have an audience when you're doing a show in an enclosed space like this. It's just it's not safe. And Warren Michaels is not a good person for doing this. <laughs> Yeah, the musical guest this week, Morgan Whalen, uh, was pulled because he was not observing the COVID protocols. Um, well, for SNL, but so. that's the thing. Like, yeah, if you're, if you can pull your musical guest if you find out that your musical guest has been breaking like what you consider the protocols to be. But you're not going to find out if one of your audience members has been, and that's all it takes. Correct. Yes, that's all it takes. <sighs> yeah, it's um, really dumb. Yeah, no, it's deeply dumb, it's deeply dangerous, and I'm very much not okay with it. They had all summer to come up with a better plan. Yeah. They, they had all summer. This is very strange to me. Um, well, it's not, it's not strange. It's like the, the mentality that this is an acceptable answer is very strange to me. But the culture at, at uh, NBC being such that Lauren Michaels just assumes he can endanger his entire cast and crew and that'll be mm-hmm. fine um, is not surprising to me at all. So, um, yeah, I imagine what has it got to be like to be you're the camera operator at SNL. And if you don't feel comfortable with this 
and you leave your job, you are never getting that job back ever again. So do you yeah. want to have a job for the next foreseeable future? Who knows how long SNL is going to be on, on the air? Or do you want to, who knows when you're going to get another job? You know, like it's just the position that they're putting their, their, their crew and their cast in and those audience members who are choosing to be there. Yes. But still uh, it's just, it's really, really frustrating. But they're also running the risk of like being exposed by the cast as well, since there was a mm-hmm. bit with um, Kate McKinnon in one of the pods, Unmasked, um, not part of that pandemic pod. And like, I'm I'm sure Kate McKinnon's taking safety precautions and maybe, who knows, I don't know yeah. her. But at, that still represents a significant risk. Um, so I'm not crazy about any of this. Yeah. So not planning to watch SNL. For now, we'll see what happens. I've watched the I've watched the opening segment and some of we can update. And the opening segment with the presidential debate was painfully not funny. So okay, yeah. yeah. If anything can get me to watch a little bit of SNL right now, it will be Maya Rudolph doing her Kamala after this VP debate. Um, yeah. but we'll see. We'll see. Um, our last bit of news here is uh, unfortunately a rather sad one. There was a set of layoffs at TV Guide uh, and. So our thoughts are with all those people who are on the job hunt now. Um, there's been a bunch more. Well, I mean, they're, they're going to continue to be waves of layoffs and furloughing and all, all that happening. Um, it's just that seems like it's just starting to get ramped up. But um, we got some friends of the show that are looking for jobs. Uh, so hire them. So who should who should people hire, Noel? Well, I mean, I'm particularly close with um, Caitlin Thomas, um, who was the senior West Coast editor over at TVGuide.com. Um, so I think she's great. I think she's amazing. Um, and she was one of my primary points of contact when I was at freelancing at both tv.com and tvguide.com. So she's great, but the rest of her team is also really, really great. Um, I have more inside information than what's been like publicly released about that. Mm -hmm. So I can't speak too much. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's really, really frustrating, especially because tvguide.com as a publication was, really doing some really interesting and great stuff starting to over the past like year and a half or so. Um, And I'm really disappointed that the company that purchased them from CBS Interactive, which is called Red Ventures or Red Venture, um, just decided to kind of completely gut the publication Um, shortly after acquiring it. They acquired the CNET media groups from CBS Interactive um, barely a month ago and then just yeah, laid off pretty much the entire staff of tvguide.com. So, yeah. Why do you why do you buy tvguide.com if you don't want to be in the business of having a TV website? My assumption is is that they bought it for CNET, which is still mm-hmm. a pretty popular tech website uh for reviews and stuff. Um it's not as popular as its competitors and it's not as popular as it once was. You know, it was once the go-to spot for tech news and tech reviews. Um but due to just various factors it has not been as prominent. But tvguide.com along with um the other reason that they probably bought it was um, included in the CNET media group was Metacritic. Mm-hmm. And Metacritic is a reason to buy a media group. 
Um, it has significant clout. It's not Rotten Tomatoes level, but it has significant clout in certain circles, particularly in the video game industry, um, where bonuses are tied to how well games perform um, on Metacritic. So I think that that was, between CNET and Metacritic, that was the reason why the rest of these brands, um, there were a few others included um, in that group, were just bundled together, basically. Um, But yeah, getting rid of TVGuide.com makes no sense to me um because yeah i i can't get into it I'm, just, yeah I'm, no that's fine no I'm, it's just yeah, like the yeah. name recognition of that there isn't better re- re- name recognition in tv coverage than tv guide you know yeah. like across the country so it's very it's very strange to me yeah. um well on that Oh, so heart crushing and soul crushing note. We are going to take a break, listen to a little music, and come back with our week in TV. Life is like a hurricane here in Duckburg. Race cars, lasers, airplanes. It's a duck blur. Might solve a mystery. Hurry, right, mystery. This week in TV, we're going to kick things off, or I should say, I'm going to kick things off with Swamp Thing, which had its CW premiere pilot. Then uh, we'll talk DuckTales, The Trickening! Sorry, The Trickening! There you go. That's, Thank that's, you. That's, that's That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Then we have Archer, Best Friends, and The Vow, The Dossier. Just check in a little bit with The Vow, and then we'll round things out with the Great British Baking Show, Biscuit Week. So last week's episode, this week's episode is Bread Week. I'll give a few thoughts on that, but we're going to focus on on biscuits. Um, so first up is Swamp Thing, which originally aired on DCU, um, the DC streaming platform, but has now moved for the fall, at least, to the CW because they need content, y'all. Um, and the the pilot is 90 minutes with commercials because it originally was an hour long, roughly, on a streaming thing. So I'm curious if they're going to keep doing that for the future episodes or if they're going to cut them down to make space for it. It's We'll see what they do. Um, I will note that the, you know, I hadn't seen it on DCU. Uh, so this is my first time watching it. And the cuts to commercial were very awkward. <laughs> it, was, it was very clearly, this is not the end of a scene, but we need five act breaks or six act breaks, you know, especially for a 90 minute show. Um, and you originally had four. Four, maybe like the like the writing had just a few you know and so it's just it, so then you get other scenes that clearly were act breaks that didn't have a commercial because <laughs> they would be too close together it was yeah and the other thing that's uh, entertaining is that they are blurring out and muting swears okay. and this is something that was originally made to have them because it's dark and gritty y'all um so something is not my jam as a property i'm not that familiar with it um i'm not that invested in like the various creatures and monster kind of comics and superheroes and all of that um even like you know creature from the black lagoon and that kind of you know genre of horror i'm not all that invested in um i thought that this was solid as far as superhero pilots go um there's some it means it's got some very tropey stuff uh but i like the cast and uh i they kind of end the end of the pilot a character maybe becomes Swamp Thing, maybe or doesn't, depending on what they how they go with it. Um, the creature 
kind of appears at the very end of the pilot. So the, it's really all about establishing our main character, which is our protagonist, female protagonist, um, who is works for the CDC and is like a badass traveling around the world, dang- endangering herself to save a, a little girl from hemorrhagic fever. And But don't worry, she's going to take all the tests to make sure she doesn't actually have it, guys, after she took off her, you know, her quarantine thing. During, like, the current situation, watching someone do that is stressful then watching them go to a different quarantine kind of area and say everybody's in masks everyone's in gloves everyone's in full gear no none of these characters are are getting sick on my um on my watch and then like face shields and and then the the main character goes in to talk to the person and she's got a mask so props she's got scrubs and gloves but she does not have a face shield and she had just said that they should all be wearing goggles and i was just like you just literally, like, two seconds ago said everyone's in goggles. And then you don't, because, like, we we have to see our attractive lead actor, you know, like, her f- expressive face. So we can't have her in clear goggles, you know. It was very strange. Um, but, it, you know, it was an interesting element to my viewing, given the current lens, you know, that we're all watching things in. Um it's, I think, fun enough, especially with the there being so little uh, in the realm of new super, new to me at least, new to me superhero yeah. content. So if you don't you don't have DCU, this will be new to you. Um, it's kind of blandly dark. I mean, obviously, it's uh, like visually. So like there, there's a lot a lot of stuff in the swamp, and they're doing a lot of CGI vines and all that. You know, so I get what they're going for with that, but I just I. I want more color. I want to be able to see better what's going on, which maybe is not the point with, you know, swamp based horror. But, um, but, you know, I like the characters enough. I like the cast, um, especially like Virginia Madsen is, is a prominent character. There's, there's just some, Oh, that guy's, you know, it's like, Oh, they are smarmy and they they're evil. We don't know how yet, but they're whatever it is. They did it. <laughs> um, so there's some fun with that. And, uh, yeah, I'll probably keep watching. It's just the pacing is a little slow um, for because of the break, commercial breaks, you know, really do split it up a lot. Um, so I'm curious to see if that improves as we go through the season or if that's just going to be a byproduct of trying to take an hour long, no commercials show and put it on to network TV. Um, so, yeah, but I like there's some good horror. There's some like, don't don't mess with the swamp. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. Yeah. Don't mess with the green, folks. Don't mess with the green. Yeah. There's which some... is a swamp thing. thing. <laughs> There's some definite, you know, threads around um, the environment and, and all of that that are also touched on. Not a lot yet, but hopefully will be soon. And I anticipate that is coming. So, yeah, I think, I think taking um, Abby Arcane and getting rid of the Transylvania roots and instead putting her as like someone from the bayou or the swamp, you know, that's where she, that's her hometown is a good call. Uh, so, so we'll see what comes next. Um, next we have DuckTales uh, and the Trickening, which did not have a swamp creature, but it did have many other creatures. What did you think of our Halloween episode of DuckTales? I think it's pretty charming. Um, I was a little confused by Launchpad not knowing what Halloween was. And I want to know where his parents are. I have so many questions for them. Mm -hmm. 
But on the whole, I thought this was really sweet. Um, I think that I think I'm also just like very glad to have this show back is sort of like a lot of what's happening in terms of my reception, because this is a pretty minor type of episode. Um, but it's also just really silly and delightful, I think. Um, so having the kids go to an actual haunted house that has been set up by monsters so that they can get free candy is terrific. Like, it's just the most beautiful idea, that, and I was just very tickled by it. I was also very pleased with Scrooge's whole deal on Halloween. So as opposed to being like a curmudgeon about Halloween, he's super into it. He just doesn't want to give out anything. He just wants to take everything, which is so Scrooge. Um, And his costume was also very good. Like Mm -hmm. it was the best costume of anyone. Um, so I, I just, I had a very good time watching this. Um, I thought it was pretty silly. Um, I enjoyed the random bits of horror movie references that were sprinkled throughout, um, without really hitting them over the head, which I also appreciated. So on the whole, very sweet, but I was also like, why aren't Lena and Violet going trick-or-treating with everyone? Where are they at? Mm -hmm. So that's where I was. Um, but I do like that we've gotten like kind of a rove spooky sort of episodes in general um right now so i'm very happy about it um how did you feel about the trickening it was super fun yeah i I liked it more than you did i think uh it was very charming and i think particularly for me now for some people this may make them sad but for me it was very heartwarming because kids aren't going to get to really trick-or-treat this year and yeah. it was like, well, I, first of all, I'm glad that they didn't air this right, like on Halloween, so rub salt in the wound. But a few weeks before Halloween is perfect because it's like, oh, this is so nice. I can pretend for, you know, half an hour that it's just like a normal Halloween and people are going to go out and have a good time and celebrate the things we love about Halloween um, and that different people you know, appreciate. So like Della versus Donald's interpretation of the holiday. Very fun. I liked, like you, I also really liked Scrooge's outfit and like the day glow kind of like shading of the skeleton and everything. Very good. I liked that it was like classic monsters versus uh, uh, Jason, right? Um, With, with the, the launch pad versus the monsters like that kind of like decades like removed movie baddie fight kind of idea that was really uh creative and fun um and yeah it was just it was neat it was fun i liked it the 24-hour candy store oh that definitely exists that definitely exists just not like in in duckburg fair enough and um the resolution i thought was very nice very appropriate and what else the um yeah the (laughs) just watching I appreciate getting to see some some Della not having to be in charge content because yes. I feel like a lot of times she's put in the supervisory role. Um, and so just watching her with Donald was really fun for me and just getting a sense of that sibling dynamic. I really appreciated it. Plus we got our spooky theme. We did get a spooky theme. It was a it was a it was a good riff, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say on, on the scale of the various themes we've gotten, it's a middling one, but I still mm-hmm. enjoyed it just for this episode. Yeah, it's an, it's no Glom Tales, mm-hmm. but it's solid. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely solid. Nothing's going to be Glom Tales. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of it's solid, 
segue, my next show is Archer, Best Friends, and I checked in with Archer, I'm checking in with Archer, because the last two episodes have been okay, but not great, but this episode was a lot more fun, because uh, they brought on Simon Pegg to be the new valet for Archer. Okay. Um, he's, he's introduced at the end of the previous episode, and then spends the, prim- uh, the most of this episode um, as the valet, and there's some twists and turns with it but it's absolutely delightful the the obstacle course that they make for um i should say um it's cheryl and pam and mallory make for the the valid candidates delightful super fun and while the some of the beats are not all that thrilling throughout throughout the season after really liking the first like the way they kicked off the season and archer accepting a support role and everything then they immediately backpedal that for the next two episodes. It's like, but then why did you have that moment of like, I will accept the fact that I am in a support capacity for now. And then in the very next episode, have him lashing out because he's not in command. Like, <laughs> Archer, why did I believe you for a second? <laughs> You're right, it was for a second. I shouldn't have, obviously. Um, but yeah, I did really enjoy that this this week's episode. And if you are looking for a bit of the classic Archer energy and fun, maybe check out this week's episode. Um, in a very different type of television, we have The Vow uh, over in Documentaries. And this week is The Dossier. And I, there's still a couple more episodes. And I'm sure I'll have thoughts at the wow. end of the... Wow. At the end of the run. But what I will say that really what really clicked in for me here in episode seven is the way that they had been structuring and building this uh-huh. season. It was starting to get a little repetitive because it felt like every episode was like peeling back another layer of the onion of this story of Keith Raniere, uh just being a um, terrible, abusing piece of shit, right? Uh-huh. And with each episode, you, you would like pull back a, like a generation of different women he's abused. Um, and so like you have our people that we've met that are the center of the documentary, but then you go back. Okay. Who was the, there was a group of women who all left like in the nineties. The and then we talked to them. And then the next episode, which was, uh, I think it was episode six, or maybe it was even this one, episode seven is somebody who left and has been harassed by him for 30 years. Um, since like before Nexium even started when he was doing his first scam. Uh, and then they've also tied that into the, like the, current day air quotes thread of trying to get coverage and um in the in the papers about what's been happening so that they can get increased interest from the authorities about this um tying that in with uh our main people we're, we're following but also the the mother of india uh oxenberg uh who is you know obviously she's one of the Catherine oxenberg is one of the stars of dynasty um and so like following that as they go like well we need more evidence they need hard evidence they need more witnesses so then let's call this person let's call this person you know that person who's that person and then that's kind of so it unfolds in that way um and it actually is surprisingly effective when you see like they need to put together a binder of information to present to the fbi basically of Mm -hmm. stuff and so that's what the dossier is about it's the dossier of of uh, criminal charges or like allegations and evidence to support that, that they, that they're going to put together. Um, so that kind of clicked into place a little bit for me in this episode. I was like, okay, that's why we've been doing it in this way. It allows us to see trends. It allows us to see patterns. Um, and, but it also gives people like, as you're watching it, it gives you time to process each like round 
of trauma and abuse with each set of survivors so that it isn't as overwhelming for the viewer and that you can see as then like we are still with our protagonists, right? Um, as we then learn about these other people's experiences, we're watching them make decisions. The, our initial group make decisions over time. So like, so that it's not too, like it doesn't jump around in the timeline as much because while they're taking time, our initial group is taking time to make their set of decisions and hear back from people and all of that. We're filling those gaps in chronolo chronology with deeper dives on some of the past uh, of this organization and of Ranieri and other people who have managed to get away from him. So uh, yes, it is still very much the same show and if it's not for you, it's still not for you. And if you've liked it, you've probably, you'll probably will continue to like it, but I'm, uh, you know, the episode ends with them heading into the FBI and obviously they can't bring cameras in. <laughs> um, yeah. so, you know, there's only two episodes left and I know a little bit of how it's got to end because <laughs> of yeah. the news, but, uh, but I'm really looking forward to seeing, um, what they do with the last two episodes. So yeah, it could be edited down. Yeah. But I think that I, I, you know, I've, it's all overall, overall been a successful viewing experience for me and an, a compelling one that I've actually been very okay having like time between each week and having it spaced out. Um, I think that the pacing, uh, and it, it would feel a lot more repetitive if I was watching it like in a row or like one a day kind of a thing, but one a week, um, there's enough space and time with it so that it, you can, it feels more like patterns and less repetitive. Um, so view it in this way. So that's sort of where I'm at with the vow. And to end on a cheerier note and a sweeter note, shall we say, uh, we have the Great British Baking Show or the Great British Bake Off season 11 or was it collection nine that they're on now? I think now? so, yes. Yeah. Uh, biscuit week or cookie week here in the US. And I'm going to start by asking you an important question, Noel. Um, sure. They have strong feelings, very strong feelings over in the UK and certainly on Bake Off about what a cookie should be. And I'm curious how you stand on this. Uh, chewy or crisp, crumbly or or or, or um, tender. Okay, so I don't like crumbly cookies in any way, shape, or form. It's not my bag. Right? Why are they so obsessed with crumbly? It's like, oh, it has that great crumbly... Like, why do you want to make a mess all over what, yourself yeah. and the table? And like, yeah. Yeah. So, no, I don't like crumbly. Um, define a tender cookie for me, though. Oh, like like a like a chewy, you know, it, it's okay, got so it's got a little bit of like a bite to it, okay. but it's not like like I when I think tender, I think of like pie crust, so like a really good okay. pie crust, right? If it's less, it's flaky and tender. The elements of pie crust, right? So like if it's less flaky and it's more, it's got that little bit of a bite. But you know, like that's what I think of. Like you know my you know my Christmas cookies, the Scandinavian almond bars. Okay. I, yeah, okay, I got you. Um, yeah, I'm... That's very helpful for our listeners, though. <laughs> yeah, but it's helpful for me. Um, yeah, I'm I'm definitely not a crumbly cookie person, but I also love a good chewy cookie. Um, but I also want, like, a crunchy cookie sometimes. Like, I don't really abide, um, like, a uniformly crunchy, like, ginger snap, for instance. Yeah, no um, interest. Like, I want the edges maybe a little, a little bit. Um, but I want the inside to be like a little soft. Um, so I think that there's, especially also like flavor profiles play a big part in this as well. Like I will go to town on any kind of chocolate chip cookie pretty much, mm -hmm. but 
it just kind of depends on like the quality of your hard version of a chocolate chip cookie versus your quality of a soft version of a chocolate chip cookie. Um, cause there are differences. And if your hard version's not good, then just give me the soft one. Um, but yeah, anything but crumbly basically <laughs> is yeah. how I feel about cookies. Um, okay. And then so, the second yeah. most important thing is, uh, obviously Rowan needed to go home, right? Like, obviously I am. I am deeply confused as to why he did not go home. Um, yeah. in part because it looked like his showstopper wasn't finished. Um, like it didn't seem as if it had all of the elements that was required of it. It looked just like he had made a lighthouse Mm -hmm. and not even a particularly good lighthouse. He just made a thing that he put a light on top of. Um, so I was very flummoxed as to why he was still, um, there, even though I do appreciate your picture of him in your review of him taking a sip of tea while he's trying to get that, um, curd, um, it's just the most bake-off thing. I just loved it's it. It's so bake-off. It's so <laughs> great. And I love it very much. But I think that the culmination of not looking like he'd finished or followed the brief for the showstopper, on top of using um, the... He used modeling chocolate for his uh, waistcoats, right? Yeah, he used mold... Yeah. Like, why would you, why would you do that? It doesn't taste yeah. good. No. And those two things alone should have sent him home. Yeah. Um. So I'm deeply and he confused. crashed the um the the technical as well. Whereas Matt got like third in the technical. Yeah. That's so the technical I'm... should have been enough to save Matt. His showstopper wasn't great, but the technical should have been enough to like just barely pull him across the edge. So I'm as much as I I think I enjoy Rowan and you enjoy Rowan. Obviously, musician solidarity. But I mean, right. facts are facts, America. <laughs> but he need he needed to go home. Um, and I'm I'm very confused as to why he's not. Um, and to answer your other question that you had in your review about um, practicing, they were able to practice in the hotel. Do um, they have multiple kitchens? I think that they probably just have staggered times. Okay. Um, but they're able to practice practice in the hotel's kitchen, is okay. what I've read. So okay. they're able to practice. Not as much as they would if they were going home on like a regular season of Bake Off, but mm-hmm. they're still able to practice a little bit, um, which is why I think kind of comes into the next couple of things as uh, why the judging has been relatively gentle so far. Yeah. Um, is also, because everything... I mean, it's 2020. Nobody wants to watch them be mean. <laughs> yeah, there's that. But there's also just the fact that for the showstoppers and for the signatures, there's less time to practice um, and there's less ability to practice. Um, so you have to basically get it right immediately. I also think it's why, to a certain degree, why the technicals so far have not been, at least two weeks in, have not been as challenging as they sometimes are. Um, because I think it's also just a mental thing of they have less time to reset. They have less time to regroup and think. Even though they don't know what the technical is going to be, they have less time to sort of mentally and physically recover between shoots so you can speak to whether or not that's starting to ramp up with red week in a moment um but i think that they're factoring in their shooting schedule in some of this as well which i think is good even if i don't necessarily think that the showstoppers have been wow great Mm -hmm. but also you know that taco tray looked really impressive it looked really good. Dave yeah. crushed it. Yeah. Like, several of them were very good. Because, like, when they were first, first guys, I was like, what is this going to... Why are we... And then I see the finished product, I'm like, oh, okay, actually, some of those are really cool. Fair enough. 
I was wrong. This can be good. I also, again, I don't get people complaining. I've seen just a few, just maybe it's just my Twitter bubble of people complaining about these showstopper challenges. This showstopper challenge was not out of line with previous seasons challenges. No, I don't think so either. This is like, they've had to make displays on cookie. They had to make their cookie like face, you know, like portrait. They've had to do all sorts of stuff like this. This is not that strange of a challenge. Like, yeah. Make like make a, a whimsical village out of gingerbread is not particularly different than make a like a coffee pot and a and a plate out of gingerbread. So like I thought or out of some sort of cookie dough, but if you choose anything other than gingerbread, we're gonna give you a hard time for it being overworked. So like um so yeah, um, I, I don't get that either. I think that the challenges actually this season have been very well selected. I've actually been yeah. super on board with all of the challenge briefs. Um I really like these bakers. The the I thought they did a better job in the second episode. The third episode, Bread Week, eh, not great. Lots of really great ideas, but the execution mm-hmm. is not where where it should be and it like you say like it just makes me long for the show that this season would be if we were in a different year because if they yeah. had this cast and these challenges even if they had harder technicals um and they could practice their bakes at home they i have no doubt that these bakers would have cleaned up and really gotten um oh like, absolutely more be- better execution of their concepts on both the showstoppers and the signatures um yeah yeah. What did you think of the coconut macaroons for the technical? Well, before we move on, I do want to note um, when I was kind of complaining about Rowan not completing the brief, um, Mac did not follow the brief mm-hmm. um, with the showstopper because he did like paneling with his cookies as opposed to the molding, which I think is probably why he ended up going home um, because he didn't mold, he built. Um, but still bullshit. Still, still, <laughs> um, still dumb. So he, he so could bullshit. have done the same thing and then just like smushed the edges together and baked it and it would have yeah. been fine. So like, yeah. 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 Um, as for the macaroons, I think that it's a good challenge. Um, this is not a cookie I enjoy cause I don't like coconut. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really appreciated the fact that it, pr- it provides just enough like sh- levels of wait, what do I do kind of things to it. Um, that I think works really well in addition to the whole, like, you have to get the caramelization, like, just right, but then you also have to make sure that there's room for that little custard, um, in the middle of it, and then getting the piping right with the chocolate. Um, so I think that it's, like, the perfect level of just tricky enough, even though it's something that, ostensibly, we all kind of know what it looks like, but... Figuring out how to do it, and in particular, figuring out how to get that gold, that golden toasted look, I think is probably the hardest bit. Um, So I was really pleased with how that all worked out for them. Well, especially how do you feel about it? Yeah, especially because they, most of the people there had very little or no experience making it. And so they, they make these and they seem like, well, I mean, it can't take that long to cook, right? And then it takes a half an hour to make a tray of cookies, which if you make any kind of cookies normally you're looking at like eight minutes 10 minutes something like that so it so it makes complete sense yeah (laughs) it makes complete sense that they would get antsy and they're like uh i'm gonna it's gonna be overcooked and then literally half the team half half of the the bakers undercooked their cookies their their macaroons because they didn't they got they didn't trust 
you know, that it was going to continue to color. They had a couple people who were like, it's just never going to brown. I'm just going to pull it. Right. Um, yeah, I also liked the the awareness that we're getting from several of the bakers, actually, maybe even most of the bakers, but several of the bakers of the time. Like, who is it? It was maybe I think it was Dave. Uh, it might have been Mark saying something similar as well. But who says there's a lot of time. So I'm guessing this has to bake for quite a yes. while because this yeah. seems like it's too long of a technical challenge based on just making this. Um, yeah. So I like that we're seeing that. I also thought they did a really good job because most of, you know, and, and similarly in the Bread Week episode, the technical challenge is all about timing. Most of uh-huh. the difficulties here was timing, managing your time um, with yeah. just a, a couple other, you know, wrinkles thrown in. But um, most of the bakers, they can follow the basic recipe. Like they know what they're doing. So they did a good job in this episode of cutting between them to really just make like a how-to video for how to make coconut macaroons. It was really fun. Um, This cast is good at, you know, talking, explaining what they're doing while they're doing it, seeing personable and not too stilted as they do it. So they would cut from one person's thing. Then you got to blitz it. Oh, but not too. Uh, then you got to blitz it. You see a different person putting it in the into the the blender, and you see then another person saying, "Oh, they make sure to say don't blitz too much." And like so, and they were cutting between all these. It was very well edited, and it was just satisfying and fun, and fun to watch. So I really appreciated that. Um, the last thing was the uh, the signature was the cookies, the Florentines. Yeah, the Florentines. I'm not familiar with Florentines. Um, do you have a connection to Florentines? My partner told me that I have enjoyed Florentines, but I don't believe her. <laughs> I don't remember eating one. Um, she insists I've had one, um, but I was just like, I don't, I don't remember that. Um, so no, I don't really have a big connection to Florentines. Um, this some of this boils down to the fact that I'm not crazy about like nuts and like baked goods, as you're aware. Um, and makes me an insane person to a number of people I know <laughs> on the internet in general. Um, so I've never been like big on, I've never, I'm convinced I've not had one, but I do think that the bakers did a really good job in terms of taking the basic concept of a Florentine and going, how can I change this? How can I make this something kind of different while still respecting the concept of what a Florentine is? So I really liked how everyone sort of did something a little bit different. Like I, I really appreciate like the idea of like, we're going to do Peter's idea of doing a sticky toffee pudding Florentine, I think is really smart. Even if it didn't quite come out, like he wanted it to right? I don't remember. No, he did. He did good on that. It it wasn't, it didn't have a crunch or crisp. Right. It It, didn't have the snap, which is like one of the ideas. But I think the idea of that on a cookie using the Florentine as the base, I think is really, really great. Um, but I also think like the decorations on general were really cool with the Florentines, like the feathering that one of the bakers did looked really, really great. Um, I really liked Lottie's Jackson Pollocky sort of approach to it, but I also really like Lottie in general. Um, quick sidebar, her little um, at home visit with oh, her man. grandparents shouting at them from the balcony yeah. kind of broke both my partner and I in the house a little bit. Yeah. Um, it was like, you're damn right. She's going to win the Florentines. Yeah. 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 (laughs) That's what we all need right now. (laughs) Um, so that, that was a little much, um, but I appreciated the acknowledgement of the pandemic in that, in that moment. But I was also just like, I don't want to right now. Um, (laughs) but in general, I think everyone did a good job in terms of coming up with a different kind of a concept for a Florentine, even using the dreaded and unfamiliar and 
oh my gosh, what is this ruby chocolate concoction that you have constructed for us? Well, and then also we've never even heard of toasted white chocolate or whatever. The, yeah, the, that, that kind of caramel white chocolate. The, the caramelized, right. yeah. yeah, white chocolate. Yeah. I was like, I've, I've heard of that and I'm not a professional baker. Yeah. Come on. And, like, my partner and I had not heard of that either. Um, and we were both really curious to, like, try it and see what it tasted like because – um, I really like caramel, and I actually do like white chocolate a fair bit. Um, it's very sweet, but I can eat a f- little bit of it at a time, and I'm generally pretty solid. Um, though I also like a cookies and cream Hershey's bar, which is just a bar of white chocolate with um, cookie chunks in it. Yeah, not, um, not, so I'll take the things with the nuts, and yeah, you can exactly. take the thing. You can take the white chocolate. You can take the specifically the cookies and cream. Yeah, no, 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 that's fair. Cookies and cream is very sweet in general, but I do enjoy it. Anyway, sidebar, anyway. Um, yeah, I think that just watching all of that play out and watching them find their own sorts of concepts, um, I think works really, really well. So I really enjoyed the Florentine Challenge a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's the same thing with Bread Week, where they the challenge that they have, it's like, have they not done this? Technically, they haven't. The, the, the signature is something they've done as a showstopper okay. in season six we're on 11 i'm fine with it and i think and it was only one and this time it's two you know so like they they're doing enough to change it up the the technical is something they did as a showstopper in season three but with a little twist on it and then the the showstopper like i better not see people complaining about the showstopper being too hard or too obscure again because like it's perfectly fine they do a good job um they have similar issues around execution but Mm -hmm. like i was like I was like literally falling asleep when I first started watching because it was too early. I was too, I should have waited to start, uh, but I you know I had to get my AB Club recap up. Um, uh, but so then I went and, like stretched and moved, got the blood flowing a little bit, and then watched that part again. And I was like, oh, actually, this is really really fun. I'm actually really kind of loving this. So I'm really excited for what's going to come next. The next episode is chocolate, and oh. yeah, I'm hoping sure. that the because they don't all show their technique at a in a great way in bread um like it's a lot of people do a really good job but are just a little bit off i'm hoping that they can take chocolate to really show i can do this guys i promise because chocolate is a tricky um element to work with let's say it's very finicky right especially when you're in a tent that's overheated with a bunch of ovens gee what could go wrong what could possibly go wrong um the last thing oh wait it's not in this episode it's in the next episode there's some okay. there's some good stuff with um uh matt lucas and Noel fielding in this next one as if, including did you know that matt lucas was on in, in the west end for uh for les mis i did not but it also kind of doesn't surprise me yeah he was uh Tenardier. he did a good job okay yeah. So there's there's some fun stuff for us to talk about for next week. But that, unless you have anything else, what no, was your week I in TV? don't have anything else. Uh, well, when's my week in TV is the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head and stayed there for over two minutes two during minutes. the U.S. vice presidential debate, um, yeah. which listeners, we didn't discuss because there's not a whole lot to say on like a television level like there was with the presidential debate, um, which is also par for the course for a vice presidential debate. <laughs> but that fly man stayed there for a solid two minutes. It needs to get a COVID test because it probably has COVID. <laughs> Yeah. What about you? Well, when you're weak in TV? Well, that's a good answer. Uh, well, the what won my week in TV for realsies is the um, end of 
elementary season three and beginning <laughs> of elementary season four, which I was rewatching part of during this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but of the things that we talked about today, uh, I'm a little torn. Uh, I guess I'll give it to, I guess I'll give it to Bake Off. Well, I mean, okay. really, I guess I'd give it to Tanner 88, but I'll, I'll give it to, to Bake Off, I guess, with an honorable mention to DuckTales. I'm legitimately surprised. I'm listeners. I don't know anything about what Kate was feeling about Tanner prior to our discussion, so I'm actually really intrigued by this. Well, and now, listeners, you can we'll take a break, listen to a segue to Tanner eighty eight, and you can hear our thoughts in just a moment. We'll be right back after this. Exercise your right to vote. Choose the one you like the most. trailer for Tanner 88 which is available streaming on HBO Max as I said at the top of the show it is a 11 episode um, show with the the it's a double pilot which is why it's 11 and not 12 so it's like an hour long pilot and then half hour episodes for the rest of the season or like I guess it would be a limited series in today's parlance Um, it follows the fictional campaign of Jack uh, Tanner as he runs for the Democratic nomination for the presidency in 1988. And it is a documentary, just it happens to be around a fictional topic. Um, And it is entertaining in several ways for Mm -hmm. me. First of all, you get to see like baby Cynthia Nixon. I say baby, she's like 20, 25, something like that. But she's, her character is like, you know, in college. You get to see several recognizable faces. Uh, I was like, Harry Anderson! Oh my god! Uh, And uh, so there's some, there's some fun with that. Um, But also, it was strange viewing for me because I have a very complicated relationship with the West Wing at this point. Sure. And um, the end of the pilot, I was like, oh, god damn it, this is just... The West Wing, but they're being even more earnest and it's not as slick. And I rebel against that even more um, until it undercuts it. And then I was like, okay, maybe we can, maybe I can get on board here. By the time, you know, because of life, I wasn't able to watch all of this. I wanted to, but I wasn't able to. So I ended up jumping from early in the season to late in the season. And when I did that, it was like, oh, this got better. Okay, I am very on board with this. I will definitely finish watching all of this. And I felt like I was, by the, the, the penultimate episode of, of the season, I felt like I just was watching The West Wing. Yes. Harry yeah. Anderson's got the ball and everything. I'm like, okay, well, that's where they got it for uh, for 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 Schiff, right? And, um, you know, our campaign manager is TJ. So, yeah. you know, you can, she's a no-nonsense 
woman who gets stuff done uh, very much in the CJ mode. Um, there's just a bunch of parallel like points. You can definitely see how this inspired the West Wing, um, but in a way that was both really compelling and interesting because they were using actual footage from the campaign trail because they had cameos from actual people uh, and politicians and in ways that were also just so frustrating. Um, but I felt like it had some of the benefits of the West Wing without the um, patronizing, really, we all just love America. And, you know, no one's no one has the worst intentions at heart for for your uh, your amongst your politicians. And if they do, you can just sit them down and just talk to them. And the if you're smart enough and you're and you're honest enough and you're, you know, open hearted enough, gosh darn it, they'll come around. Like it in a way that you could argue brainwashed a generation of uh liberals. Um so it certainly so I, did that number on me anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I um yeah, I have, like I said, very complicated emotions around the West Wing. So this tapped into some of that, but in a more positive way, the further we went along into the, the run of the show. So I'm really curious how you felt about it. Yeah, so um, I also really enjoyed it. Listeners, I was able to, I, the reason I didn't watch a lot of other TV this week is because I watched all of this. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I kept saving it and I was like, I'll have time at the end. Of, and then some stuff came up and I did not have time at the end of the week. So sorry, yeah. guys. Um, but I will also say that, like, the first episode, the the, the double pilot is brutal to watch. It's, it's too so long. long. Um, it's and bad. it also kind of runs in, like, too many circles, um, which I think is sort of the point, but it's very difficult to tell. Um, but once you get past the pilot, I think that the show improves. And then there's a real kind of shift um, around episode five or six. Um, and the show just, like, finds a new gear. Um, but I also think a lot of that also chalks up to the show's production, which I'm going to take a minute to talk about here, um, because it's a weird show, you know, on a production level. Um, so the, sh- the first episode aired in, on February 12th, 1988 on HBO. There wasn't a new episode for a month. And then it was another month mm-hmm. and then another month. And then two weeks later, we got episode five. So February 12th, March 14th, April 12th, May 2nd, May 16th, and then like another two weeks, June 6th for episode six. Um, So the entire idea of the show, which is one of the reasons why I find it so compelling as a fake documentary, is that the show was responding to things in as real time as possible, Um, trying to keep the rhythms of the campaign of 1988 going. Um... Which is why, like, it's really delightful when they make, like, a bunch of Gary Hart jokes at the in the first episode. And you're just like, right, because he dropped out and then got back in and then dropped out again. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners, if you're not familiar with Gary Hart, there was an HBO movie about it with Hugh Jackman. You can watch that or you can read Gary Hart's Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. Um, but needless to say, Gary Hart was a weird, weird person within the um, Democratic field in the late 80s. Um, but you also get that stuff with, like, Bruce Babbitt. So um, episode five is Bagels with Bruce. Um, and Bruce Babbitt was this 
supposed to be this knockout star candidate from he was the governor of Arizona. He was going to be this big candidate that was going to blow out the Democratic primary field and completely failed to do so. Um, he polled really poorly in Iowa and New Hampshire and then just dropped out. But he was seen as this guy who's just going to dominate and then just did not. And then he shows up in episode five as himself. Um, so all of this, the show's whole deal of running a fake campaign and then weaving it into the actual campaign, I think is really compelling and really interesting. All the way up to the fact that they're actually filming during the Democratic nominating convention in Atlanta in 1988 and Michael Murphy who plays Jack Tanner is just wandering the floor of the convention as Jack Tanner and just like bumping into like Tom Brokaw and shit and people are just like who the fuck is this guy and it's (laughs) a fake documentary that's happening so I think that there's just a lot of really interesting things in the ways in which they made the show and wrote the show as much as they could write a show like this because a lot of it was improvised and a lot of their exchanges with actual politicians were basically just here's what we want you to kind of get at you write your own dialogue or come up with your own dialogue for it, which is what they did with Babbitt um and we'll film that um so I yeah, so I really like this um, from a perspective of just a historical document about politics on television and like how we're starting to think about it. But it's also really compelling as a fake reality show, almost. And the weirdness of our conceptualizations of reality on television and our reality of politics and the idea of authenticity of politicians but also of television this the show's just really subtly quietly very smart without hitting you over the head with the fact that it's smart even so much so that i think it actually wants you to not think it's particularly smart sometimes um so i actually really really like this and i was very glad to watch it so now we can kind of dig in i guess um yeah yeah well and you know, it reminds me of when The Daily Show first did their Indecision 2000 coverage and yes, followed along exactly. the campaign. But, of course, they were ask- doing <laughs> they were doing comedy. They were asking ridiculous questions, just told very straight-faced at- with the actual people. And then you could only do that once. And then from, you know, then on, you know, that changed how people approached, you know, coverage and how, you know, comedic and, and comedy shows uh, handled the- that kind of political news but um this the i haven't heard of a different show doing anything like this where it's straight up like they're filming there but it's not a stunt it's not a comedy thing it's not a parody it's just a drama set at the same time um the closest i could think of is like some of the cameos we got in like parks and rec and that kind of a thing but this is straight up it's the real world but there's also another candidate (laughs) um Yeah. yeah i didn't quite finish the finale so i am on I am on tender hooks uh, about the um the the potential independent run. Don't because of course we all all know how how that run how Dukakis's run went, but it's like and, you know, anybody talking about running third party right now just pisses me off so much. So you know maybe I'll revisit this at some point with more distance, and I, I'm sure I'll have a different relationship uh, when we're not in the current political climate that we're in. But um, yeah. It was certainly a show. It starts slow. And I'm so glad that you also did not like the pilot because I was I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. What's happening? There's 11 of these. And then when I got to the second episode, it was only half an hour. It's like, oh, 
saying dear sweet baby Jesus because like I couldn't do 11 hours of that um and so listeners power through the premiere get to the second episode and it'll, it'll build from there so wh- what characters were you most invested in which performances stood out to you so I think Michael Murphy is great as Jack Tanner. Um, it's uh, listeners. He's a former congressman, uh, which means he served in the House, U.S. House of Representatives um, for Michigan, um, who had been sort of like faded out um, of politics after his daughter, played by Cynthia Nixon, um, suffers like a medical uh, medical condition that she's recovered from at this point. Um, but then there's also some family stuff that they tease out a little bit as well with his ex-wife. Um, but so I think Murphy does a really great job of kind of being a almost without the war element, a very proto John Kerry in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, to me, he really ends up blending both Gore and Kerry in really late, like two early aughts, um, Gore and Kerry perceptions. And Gore, I should note, was also running for president in 1988, 1988 and dropped out um, shortly, after Iowa, New shortly after New Hampshire, I think. Um, the field winnowed really, really quickly in 1988. Um, Joe Biden was also running in 1988, yep. which is when he had his big plagiarism um, scandal was in 88. Um so I think Michael Murphy is really, really great. Um, Pamela Reed naturally is terrific as TJ. Um, and so I think the two of them really do a great job of keeping the show on wheels um, in really interesting ways. Like Reed's performance is all this like forward momentum, hard bitten, hard boiled campaign manager type of stuff. Um, and Murphy's, Tanner is, as the show makes a great deal of hay out of, a cipher. Like, you don't know what he is, and he doesn't know what he is, which is part of the joke of the for real tagline that they develop for him. But Murphy plays Tanner so close and so kind of closed off, um, but not in a way that you don't want to get to know him, but in a like that aloof, attractive sort of way. Um, which I find really compelling to watch them try to figure out ways to explain why Tanner is being successful. Um, and Murphy does a really great job of also doing the I'm listening politician face a lot. And it's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, Murphy and Reed um, really kind of carry the show, though I think um, we should also highlight Cynthia Nixon, who does really, really great work as Alexandria. Um, she gets a little pushed to the side um, towards the end of the end of the show and gets some not great stuff to play. But the initial like first half, I think she's great in, and the material that she's given is also really, really great. Um, what about you? Who stood out to you, character and actor wise? Well, I yeah, I also really thought those central performances were. I mean, it, it was, the show wouldn't work if those two didn't work. Mm-hmm. And to remember, so much of this was uh, improv. Um, so that speaks a lot to uh, the the type of performers and the like, just the feel of it too. Not everybody would be able to do that. So they they do a good job really making these characters believable, especially when you you know the it, it for a younger person or a millennial to think about making this before the West Wing, before you had those blueprints of like the fast talking, like 
how the, the high energy kind of behind the scenes are really like this kind of thing um, that that just has become such a mo- a mode a model right such a mold of how we make politician based storytelling that um, this I mean I'm sure there were other movies and and books and uh, TV shows and stuff doing that beforehand that I just am not aware of but. They are particularly believable, I think. Um, also, when uh, Harry Anderson, like I mentioned earlier, shows up in uh, the second to last episode and is just so good. <laughs> He's really, yeah. really good as uh, Billy Ridenour, who is like a backroom dealer kind of guy trying mm-hmm. to make some magic at the convention. Um, so those are the ones that that most stood up to me. But I thought some of the 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 carrying through threads with the you know the the assistants and the the um, um, the reporters and they, they do a good job of of creating a feel of a campaign where you've got some people doing everything and some people popping in and out. Um, I thought it really worked. Yeah, um, Veronica Cartwright is also in this as a uh, reporter for NBC that I think is really, really great as well. Um, she's given a lot of weird beats to play. <laughs> the character arc of that character is wild. Um, but it's still really good. And like some of the press stuff isn't the best because actors just kind of dip in and out sometimes. Um, the fellow who plays um, Seidelman, who's a reporter that's with um, the Tanner campaign for like the first half just kind of disappears in the <laughs> second half of the show. Um, and I don't, I don't quite know what happens there, but again, when you're filming episodes like months apart or a month apart from when other things are going to happen, um, yeah, so I think Veronica Carr does a really great job, but your point about how they really concoct this feeling of a campaign happening is really, really impressive. And the again, the weird amount of access that they got to like getting to film again at the convention is ridiculous. Even before the convention was done, they do like a little shot of him standing up on stage, Tanner standing up on stage while it's under construction and doing a victory pose with um, Alexandria. And it's just really wild that they got, <laughs> they got to do that. Um, but then there's also just like random stuff of like buses breaking down or advanced people, um, weird faux pas with a robot at a Michigan trade show that keeps asking about his drug policy. Um, uh, kissing babies. <laughs> and kissing babies. Yeah, no, it's all really good. Um, one of the other things I really like, though, about this is because Tanner as a candidate, is so interested in listening as opposed to speaking, we actually get to hear from a lot of people in the show, uh, just uncut almost. So in The Girlfriend Factor, um, which is episode eight, um, Tanner goes to an event in a Detroit community, um, and the for like a solid seven to eight minutes, I feel like it's at least five minutes. It's I'm assuming just non-actors talking about their community and its relations to drugs and violence and its then relationship to the American political system. Um, And there's no commentary on it. There's just the presentation of these community members talking about it and being given this platform by Robert Altman and Gary Trudeau. Um, to just sound off about everything. Um, And it's really interesting and it's really compelling. And the ways in which that they just give that space is something that I feel like you don't get in this kind of a show and 
in another type of show, I should say. And that you also get it without, like, too much of a pablum follow-up. There's a little bit of a pablum follow-up at the end of that episode. Did you manage to get to watch that episode? Um, no, I had to skip that one. Okay. Um, I don't love the ending of it because it feels too aggressive of a button um, on what happens. Um, so if you're going to go back, I'm not going to spoil it. Um, but it's it's a weird button that I think wants to drive home the ideas, but it also feels too manufactured, which, again, I think is part of the point. But again, this gets to the idea that the show is very smart, um, but also doesn't want you to think that it's too, too smart. Um, so, yeah, I just, there's a lot to chew on in this show, I think. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, listeners, if you, like I said earlier, if you're into the West Wing and looking for something different to to check out something new, try this. It's, again, it doesn't have the sweeping score. It doesn't have the Sorkin. It does have the same kind of uh, energy and vibe uh, for the campaigning seasons. Um, if you are interested in documentary style TV and, you know, check it out. Uh, if you want to see... 20-something Cynthia Nixon being a political daughter. Check it out. Um, but yeah, I, I was surprised how much I ended up really uh, intrigued by this one. So thank you for recommending it and for p- picking that we would watch it because I would not, I like I said, I hadn't even heard of it before. So I'm glad you have watched it. Uh, any final thoughts? Uh, also, listeners, if you do decide to check this out, um, keep in mind that it's, it was filmed in 1988, which means this is in a 4 by 3 ratio and it has not been remastered really, it looks yeah. like. Oh, yeah. Um so the the video quality is not the best. Um you can see everything but it's decidedly fuzzy. Um the only other thing I'll note and I'm sad that it's not available is that there's a four part follow up mm-hmm. called Tanner on Tanner which was on the Sundance channel in I want to say the early aughts. Um that reframes like the narrative just a little bit but I have not seen that either. Um it's also not like super widely available. Um, but I'm glad HBO Max has made 10 or 88 available because it's weirdly pressing and timely, I feel like. Um, mm. Down to the fact that Joe Biden's running for president again. Yeah. Uh, Tanner on Tanner was from 2004. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm very intrigued to see that somehow yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so that will wrap up our conversation on 10 or 88. If you show us here at the end of the episode, you can find a post for this episode over at theteleverse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what we thought of the week's TV. You can like our page on Facebook and start up a conversation there. Uh, you can email us at gmail.com. You can find our M4A chaptered feed and our MP3 unchaptered feed up in Apple Podcasts. And uh, we're also over on Stitcher. We'd appreciate ratings and reviews either place. You can find my write-ups of The Great British Baking Show or Great British Bake Off over at The AV Club. And we are both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, And Noel, you are? At Noel RK. Thank you so much for a great discussion this week, Kate. Thanks, Noel. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.